This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ communities, this is Well, 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 brought to you every week by Thorn Harbour Health. You are indeed on Well, Well, Well with Michael this week here on Joy 94.9, where each and every week, myself and the team from Well, Well, Well discuss all things sexual health, mental health, and the general overall health and well-being of our LGBTI and people living with HIV communities. I am now joined by Joy's own Liam Clark, co-host of Joy's Babble Pop and Joy Eurovision and Estonian head of press for Euro- the Eurovision Song Contest. I feel like I'm I'm amongst royalty. Yes, in- but I, I am also former co-host of Well, Well, Well. Indeed so so it's are. not that universally uh, mind-blowing. <laughs> it is for me. Just let, let me feel my feelings. <laughs> And we are, of course, um, having a bit of a conversation about Eurovision with the Song Contest coming up in just a few weeks' time. We thought we would do a bit of an overview in terms of what Eurovision means, obviously for our diverse LGBTIQA plus communities, but also what the Song Contest means for the countries represented, the, the performers represented, and how they use that platform as a space for um, national pride, for advocacy, for activism in some cases, and kind of tease out a few of those things. And you, obviously, as I mentioned, have an illustrious dance card when it comes to all things Eurovision, Mr. Liam Clark. Yeah, if you need somebody to overthink Eurovision, I'm your guy. (laughs) So we have the right person in the room. Thank you very much for joining (laughs) us. Um, So where does your... uh, maddening obsession with Eurovision come from? Uh, So I I think like a lot of Australians, uh, particularly a lot of Australians who got into Eurovision before Australia itself turned up, um, it came from being, and I'm going to use air quotes here, an ethnic minority, uh, which is kind of a wild thing to say as a very, very white person. Uh, But my mum's family's from Norway. So it's, you know, it's like technically. Uh, So for me in the 90s especially, it was a kind of a way uh, and really the only non-Winter Olympics way that we would have any sort of feeling of connection to our Norwegian-ness. Yeah. Um, and when did, when did you first sort of kind of like make that connection with Eurovision? So the, the first time I made the proper connection would have been in the early 2000s. However, I have some very distinct memories um, before SBS came to Aubrey Wodonga. Mm-hmm. Um, of seeing some Eurovision results. And, and Norway typically was terrible at Eurovision. Um, I think it's still... Oh, we might have just been pipped. Uh, for a long time there, we had the most amount of last places. I think it might be Austria now. Uh, but for a long time there, it was Norway. Um, and definitely still in the 90s. And then we had like four really good results in a row. We got like a, a fourth and then a fifth and then a first and a second. And then the next year we came last with no points again. So, you know, right back to form. But I remember there being some buzz around about that time with yep. my family um, because Norway had finally succeeded at something um, that we typically hadn't succeeded at. Oh, bless Norway. Um, now, Eurovision obviously has a pretty clear connection with, you know, LGBTI visibility and representation. There's a reason we have a program that is Joy Eurovision um, because as as queer people, we get to choose our family and that family <laughs> is Eurovision. Um, and we'll get into some specifics, but why do you think 
queer people specifically are so dedicated to Eurovision? I think, um, I mean, that's sort of, I guess, getting into why a queer is so obsessed with pop culture. Um, and I think it comes down to the fact that once we've broken past um, the things that sort of, you know, make us feel ashamed, we don't really feel shame in the same way. We'd like, we've got permission to exist outside the norm. Um, and or if we are still in the closet, it's one of those comforting things. Um, I don't know the... F- I mean, I guess that's definitely like a media studies PhD somewhere and there's probably a bunch out there already. But I think we just love pop culture. Yeah. So every aspect of pop culture is going to get obsessed over by gays and this just happens to be one that involves flags and travel and pop music and key changes and so many colors. key changes. Oh my god, I love that. And sparkly outfits and yeah, grand it, performances. It, and, and a lot of there's a lot of camp to Eurovision as well. Yeah, European pop music kind of has this, I don't want to say unhinged, but it's a slightly you can more say unhinged. it's a slightly more unhinged uh, kind of vibe to it. It's not kind it's not really It doesn't meet specific rules in the way that No, in, unless you're talking about Sweden and yeah. Sweden. Uh, it's not really produced to the same level. It's yep. not this sort of cynical, contrived, I'm trying for a pop hit thing. For the for the most part, it's people making pop music because they love pop music. Uh, and trends are a little bit different there. Um, it just has a very kind of different vibe. And it's definitely inspired by American and British pop music. But it, it's there's something about it that is a bit crazier. And yep. also the notion of you being one of up to... 26 countries on stage with only three minutes allowed and only 40 seconds to introduce it. There's no time for a story. There's no time for any sort of preamble. You've got to get out there and stick in people's minds. So it often means that the stage performances can vary from a little bit crazy to hitting the panic button and going wild off the track, uh, off the tracks, full train wreck. Yeah. Um, which is wonderful to see. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the proper, good quality, amazing diamond level pop. But also I love when things go... A little bit bonkers. Yeah, and everyone makes the wrong stylistic decision. Yep. And it just is a beautiful confluence of mess. <laughs> it's a beautiful obscenity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, outside of the, the queer community, the contest obviously has kind of become a bit of a space, um, well known as a space for kind of advocacy, promotion of national identity... Why do you think that is? Is it, I was kind of alluding to this before we started recording today, is it around, you know, the, the kind of post-war identity crisis and national identity and, and all of that sort of thing? What, why do you think it is that it becomes a literal stage for advocacy? Um, I, I think it's, I mean, at its very core, Eurovision, aside from the fact that it was, it was started to help them test out a TV network of satellites to see whether they could do live broadcasts in multiple countries. That was like the official first reason. Um, the other side of it was that it was just after, like, it was maybe 10 years after World War II, Europe was still like looking over the neighbor's sense and like being a little oh, shifty, shifty. So it was a way to show off a short burst of your culture to your neighbours and absorb a little bit in return. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's really grown from that. Not every country does this every single time, but you will always see a little bit of like something that is very specifically to that region. To that region, it, it's a chance to make people in Estonia listen to some Portuguese fado. Um, it, you know, then you can 
go the other way around and see some Estonian indie folk pop uh, in Lisbon. It's a way to share a little bit of that sort of cultural stuff that and make people think about countries that they don't normally think about. Like in, in Europe especially, each of those countries, like people talk about people voting for their neighbours, but that, those are the countries that they think about the most. Portuguese people think about Spain way more often than they think about Lithuania. Lithuania thinks about Latvia way more often than they think about Portugal. So it, it's a way for them to show off a little bit of what's going on and think about each other for a little bit. Yeah. And um, and again, we were we were chatting just earlier around the way that the the song contest and the performances and the people that you send can be a a way of airing out grievances, geopolitical kind of nonsense that's going on, stuff that's happened historically, and as a way to kind of cleanse the palate of of that kind of experience. Yeah, it's. I mean, I feel like as a uh, as a form of art, mm. um, it is able to the the topic of a song is able to be anything that you can write into a song uh, now there are rules about making the contests uh, about politicizing um, but that there's that doesn't mean that you can't talk about things yeah the the most mostly what that comes down to um, is that if another country objects to a song you have sent um, if it you know besmirches them in some way mm. or is an ta- a direct attack then they can object to it. Sure. Uh, so often um, it'll be discussing a historical event um, or just discussing an identity thing. Yep. So if nobody has any objection to, you know, a legitimate objection, I should say, sure. then it's going to get through. So we, we you know, um, I don't know if you want me to discuss specific songs here. Yeah, I would, I would, I would love some examples because I'm, I'm very much a novice when it comes to Eurovision. So I'm, at, I'm at your will when it comes to specifics regarding Eurovision. So the the one that pops to head the like as the most obvious, particularly right now, um, is to think of the 2016 winner, uh, 1944 by Jamala from Ukraine. Um, uh, she's a Crimean Tatar uh, who was born in Uzbekistan because her grandparents were forcibly deported from Crimea um, in 1944. And it's about that uh, ethnic cleansing that took place where they moved people all throughout the Soviet Union. Mm. But I guess she's obviously speaking specifically of her experience, her family's experience in Crimea. But because it is something that happened all over the former Soviet Union and even, and even a bit in Yugoslavia, um, it was a message that resonated all through Europe. A lot of people complained that that was, you know, too political as a topic, particularly in 2016 when mm. there was movement on Crimea uh, by Russia. It was annexed. Um, but Russia didn't object because Russian people also experienced that. Sure. Um, because, you know, when they moved people out, they moved Russians in and a mm. lot of families were broken up by that. So it, it's gotten through on, like, I guess, a historical grounds. But it, it's a way of, like, really talking about a highly traumatic um, generational trauma um, that is still talked still about a lot felt. today. Yeah, yeah, like there's a um, there's a day memorializing that in Estonia, a national day of mourning every year. Um, yeah. So like the people of Estonia obviously felt that song as well. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I mean, I, I use the example of Estonia because I know a lot of Estonians. I've been there for that national day. It's a very somber day. Mm. Um, but it's definitely a way that you can talk about those sort of things and channel it through channel artistry. it through in artistry and also in a way that is more accessible 
Yeah. Like it's very that spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down kind of thing. You can like see this impressive performance and still feel the power and like the reclaiming of the uh of the experience of the experience yeah 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 and you're uh, as you said you're no stranger to eurovision and you are heading over to eurovision um very shortly um and you have a bit of a tradition of throwing a eurovision kind of themed party fundraiser tell us about it yeah so in addition to the uh uh the list of activities that had been mentioned earlier i was also melbourne rubberman 2016 uh, for those who don't know what that is, I essentially won a beauty pageant for guy, for guys wearing latex. Um, and as part of that, you're expected to do some sort of charity event, I guess, at some point. Not a compulsory thing, but it's, you know, sort of, you know, part of the thing. Um, so for mine, um, I did a little preview party back in 2017, and it's sort of just carried on every year since then, with the exception of 2020, when we all had to stay home and not go outside or we'd be very, very, cro- our parents would be very cross with us. <laughs> um, so I've done that. And instead of the money going to the charity, I went for back in 2017, it goes to whoever's the charity of whoever the current reigning is. Sure. So uh, basically we all meet up at the Laird. Um, Dina, Curie and I will show you all of the songs for this year's contest. Um, the film clips of which I always think is really fun because you get to see not what the stage performance looks yeah, like. Yeah, you get another level. Yeah. Uh, I also think it's great for anyone who likes Eurovision to have a rough idea of who they might like because mm. then it gives them a little bit of pre-work and then they can just be like, okay, well, I already like Spain, so I might cheer for Spain. Yeah. Um, and also, you you know, you can win some prizes and mm-hmm. uh, it's also a fun night out at the Laird. And you run it like like it's Eurovision, so you yes. get to vote for the countries in the kind of voting mechanism that Eurovision uses yes. when they vote. Yes. Exactly. Uh, it can be a little bit daunting because at Eurovision, there's never more than 26 songs mm. on offer at one time due to the semifinals, whereas this is all 39 or 40, depending on whether a country has withdrawn this year or not, mm-hmm. which we're unsure which we'll about. Which we'll get into. Which we'll get into. <laughs> um, but you, so you have to like narrow down the uh, the 10 songs you like most from those 40. Um, but it's very, very fun, I think. And, and also, yeah, you, it, there's a bit of a sweep if you want to enter it and you can win some prizes if the country that you've been randomly allocated to mm. wins. But you don't know which country you've got because we don't want you to vote for... Yeah, so it, it's a sweep. So you, It's a sweep. You, get, you walk in the door and then you get given a country. It's like, haha, you yes. have Moldova. Okay, good, good for you. Off you go. I hope you like trains. I hope you like trains. <laughs> Um, yeah, so you don't get to pick your favourite country, but yes. then you get to vote and rank and, and yep. do all of that fun stuff. Um, now, you have a Eurovision party coming up very soon. You have one coming up next week. Yes, it's on Tuesday, the 19th of April. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, I, I always do it the Tuesday before I leave for Eurovision. Um, I wish I'd planned that a little bit better in my head because now I have to wear double masks the whole time because I don't want to miss out on going to Eurovision. But, yes, so that's true. That's true. I will be very uh, masked up. Yeah. Just uh, behind a Perspex screen. I will be in the Pope-mobile. <laughs> in the, in, yeah, the, the COVID Pope-mobile. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's happening at the Laird, which of course is a um, is strictly a male-only venue. They, they are not opening up to all genders for the night, so you have to be male-identified to attend. That is correct. That is correct. Uh, and no tickets for that. It's just a first-in, best-dressed scenario when yes. it comes to uh, the, like the sweeps and that sort of thing. Yes, indeed. Yep, indeed. Um, we have been talking about advocacy, activism, and the ways that people use um, 
the the Eurovision Song Contest as a point of pride, national identity, to kind of showcase what they're all about. And I wanted to just circle back to what we were talking about around LGBTI representation and visibility in Eurovision. You know, there's some people just by virtue of competing, they're making a political statement or they're making an impact particularly for LGBTI people, you know, people like Conchita Verst in recent history obviously made a big splash by being a a queer person, a drag queen, um, a person living with HIV who disclosed their status um, much, much later. And I know you have a special place in your heart for one Dana International. Uh Uh-huh. Can you tell us a little bit about some kind of... um, some ways that people have used the platform either directly or indirectly to kind of showcase their their identity as a, as a queer person. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like uh, it, it's always been somewhat of a queer thing. Like it, it's back in the day, it was a bit more unspoken, but the audience was always very queer. Um, it, it's kind of this interesting thing where, especially, I mean, even more now mm. um, it's not a queer specific space, but if you, are at Eurovision and you are a man it, you, if, and you're straight, you're the one that has to come out. It's yep. the gay people that are the majority, uh, which as a gay person is marvelous. Yeah, is, is a nice change of pace. It's a nice change of pace. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it's always been like this kind of hush-hush thing until about 97 uh, when the first openly gay singer performed. Um, and boy, was, was that gay. <laughs> T- tell us about that. I'm not, I'm not at all familiar with this particular individual. So, what, what happened? Who is okay, this person? So uh, it's actually probably the first really queer-themed song. Uh, and it was in Icelandic, so people obviously who didn't speak Icelandic didn't really know what it was. and uh, It did terribly. Um, but it was uh, by this openly gay singer called Paul Oscar, um, or Paul Oskor, um, who sang the song called Minhinsti Dance. He was... Uh, wearing PVC pants and had like a bevy of uh, dancers around him wearing PVC and was sitting on this like leather sofa most of the time. Um, so already very, very... I already know what, what concert I'm attending. Uh-huh, um, yeah, it's 97. Mm-hmm. He looked like he'd seen a bit too much Gary Newman. You know the vibe. <laughs> uh, and the song itself was actually based on a suicide note from somebody who was uh, living with HIV back in the early days of the AIDS crisis and was... Yep going to commit suicide before he progressed too far. Yep. And it was this very, like, bold, queer statement, Yeah, um, which I think a lot of people have missed because they don't speak Icelandic. <laughs> and and it was in 97. It was in 97. Yeah. Um, and a, a real period of kind of upheaval for kind of yeah. the lives of people living with HIV. We've, we'd only just kind of brought in highly active antiretroviral treatment. So for that statement to be made then was a really probably a, a very present conversation around, you know, the life expectancy of, of people living Absolutely. with HIV. And, and it was a very clear, I, I guess, statement um, by Iceland to send a song like that to mm. show that they have that sort of progressive values. I mean, I think if you uh, think of queer representation in Iceland, it's unsurprising to, to know that they are one of the most progressive LGBT countries. Yep. In the world. I think they were the second in the world to have an LGBT head of state. Yeah, wow. Um, so I, th- I, th- I think that's interesting too, just even to think about what you were saying around, you know, the active choice of, you know, um, Iceland as a country to send that person and the ways that different countries kind of elect their person they're going to yeah. send. Because everyone does it a little bit differently, am I am I right? So yeah. people have like... It can be you know, an internal choice internal by the TV station or, someone, or it can be a, yeah. a live televised one. That was a live televised one. Sure, yeah. I 
don't quite remember whether that was jury voting or whether we were in the televoting age yet. It's mm. sort of that's where it sort of crosses over. Yeah. Um, I think it might have been televoting, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, and and whether I presume for kind of smaller countries where they're like, well, this is just who we've decided because there's no there's not enough contestants to kind of throw into a pre-selection ring. Am I yep. am I right? Yeah. Uh, it depends from country to country. Iceland mm. is. Uh, I think quite well known as a country of artists, yep. um, so despite the fact that they are about the size of Geelong. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, they are a country that punches well above their weight, um, art and music wise. You heard it here first, Geelong, step it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, another, like the second example I can think of, mm. the year after we got the first openly gay performer, uh, we got the first openly trans performer, which yeah, was wow. Dana yep. International. Mm-hmm. Um, who was representing Israel, who I guess similarly, I mean, there's been a lot of, I guess, criticism yeah. about Israel in the way they um, quote-unquote pinkwash things. Yep. Uh, but at the same time, they sent a trans singer to Eurovision in 1998 yep. um, who won the whole thing. Who won, thing. yeah. 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 Uh, with, the, I would say, like a, a, a very era, Eurovision-era defining pop song. It was the first song without an orchestra accompaniment. It yeah, kind of wow. really proved that you don't need the orchestra anymore. So it re- the whole contest shifted after that. Yeah, because Eurovision has these uh, tropes, probably isn't the right word, but it has these kind of recurring themes around yeah. what is a successful Eurovision song, those things you were mentioning around key changes and the kind of sparkly bubblegum Europop of it all. Yeah. So to have someone come in, you know, and and be, you know, a very clear and present, visible trans person, yeah. and then to also showcase a different side of music is... Uh, Really powerful. Yeah, like I would credit Dana International with maybe not single-handedly, but largely bringing Eurovision into the late '90s pop music, like bringing what was mainstream in. Because pr- prior to that, there'd been a lot of you had to have an orchestra, mm. so it was a lot more sort of orchestral and maybe a little bit uh, not super pop relevant. A lot of the winners in the '90s were all like very Celtic ballads. Sure. Yeah. Um, we all remember the Celtic. Well, I mean, I guess some of the listeners probably are too young to remember the Celtic <laughs> remember ballad the craze. Celtic, uh, uh, um, craze yeah. But yeah, so Dana International. I mean, and of course, she was mocked relentlessly. Mm. Um, and it was kind of like my the really first memory I have of a queer person just being unfazed. Yep. Like she was just unbothered, unfazed. Uh, she went out there. She smashed it. She was fierce. Uh, she still like is completely unbothered unfazed living in her fantasy her french vanilla fantasy (laughs) which we love so deluded but i love her and for you and i who are of a similar age and kind of growing at a very important and impressive um time experientially in that was 1998 yeah to see a a visibly queer person succeeding on a mainstream level is um, wild is wild is absolutely wild yeah um i do think it's almost kind of shocking to think though that it wasn't until uh 2018 that we had an openly gay woman at eurovision yes yeah which is like they'd been bonkers yeah Yeah, bonkers yeah but um on that on kind of uh, queer women and the the advocacy of like queer women in that space Mm -hmm. Beyond just the presence, there are lots of um, contestants that have kind of woven activism and advocacy into performance. Yep. Was it Finland's 2013 entry? Marry Me, featured, yep. Yeah, featured a, a kiss between queer women? Uh, they were both straight. Well, maybe the, I'm not... It was sh- a same-sex kiss. It was that, a same-sex yeah. kiss. 
Um, I don't know that the, about the backing singer's identity. Sure. I know the lead singer does identify as straight. Okay. Um, but she is like a 100% ally. Yeah. Um, so that was the year that Finland was debating on gay marriage. Um, and it, it, the song was called Marry Me. It was like, a, a, it started as a joke to her then boyfriend to like, that she was going to like write a song like to make her, make him marry her. Um, and then she did it. It won the Finnish national final. And then she decided, well, let's make a statement with now. this. <laughs> yeah. Well, they did get married. And <laughs> they they did get married. <laughs> they've subsequently been divorced, but still, uh, she, yeah, in order to make a statement and to like prove a very clear stance in the marriage uh, referendum mm-hmm. in Finland, she decided to include a same-sex kiss in the end. Yeah, which again, you know, the intersection of you know what's happening currently politically yeah. for, for Finland, but also, yeah, making a, a, a much broader statement around the visibility of um, even if that person is, um, you know, cis heterosexual, is you know obviously a, a queer ally, um, huge and, queer ally, and using wonderful. that platform to. Yeah. To showcase that is yeah is pretty um, impactful, and subsequently it has been used as one of the reasons why Turkey won't return to the competition. I, that is one of the few things that I do know about Eurovision yeah. is that I did I did hear that that um so Turkey have not since entered. Turkey since last then? entered in 2012. Yeah, they left in uh they withdrew for 2013 in protest of voting rules that they thought were not fair to them. Sure, um, which was just less that it was it minimized the amount that Turkish diaspora around Europe could push Turkey to the, to the, to the top rankings. It was it, uh, making it a 50% jury and a 50% televote. Whereas sure. during the pure televote era, Turkey had really thrived. Sure. Um, so Turkey took it as a personal attack uh, and then has uh, retconned what they, the reason was after. To say that it was around the visibility of, yes. of queer people. It's like, read the room, know where you are. You're at Eurovision. Yeah, well, they're not anymore. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. They're not anymore. But maybe one day we'll see him back. Yeah. And outside of the LGBTI space specifically, obviously European geopolitics are, you know, at an all-time high mm-hmm. <laughs> um, with, you know, things like Russians' exclusion this year. Um, as you mentioned earlier, there's been obviously boycotting of um, Israel because of the boycott divestment sanctions mm-hmm. movement around Palestine. Um, what are some memorable points for you, I guess, in terms of advocacy from uh, from a kind of a geopolitical standpoint? Yeah, well, I, so I, I think um, to especially, like, mention the um, BDS, that's, that's BDS, isn't it? Um, yes, the um, boycott, boycott divestment yep. um, sanctions movement. Yeah, so in Israel, um, I don't think anyone withdrew in the end from memory. Um, I think there were a couple of countries that couldn't afford to go. Um, actually, no, no, everyone was there. Let me start that again. It's, it was 2020 that people withdrew. Um, yeah, so I, I think uh, when it comes to things like BDS, um, it really has allowed countries hosting who have complicated relationships with either themselves or people within the country or their neighbours. It's fashion. Uh, it's, it's shown that they can, like, hosting Eurovision or taking part in Eurovision even is, like, a really, really good way to air out that country's skeletons. And, I mean, everyone has skeletons. I don't think unless you're... San Marino, and probably even them. I don't think anyone out, any country out there is completely without blood on its hands. Um, some more than others. And I think it's a really good thing when 
shining a light on them, hosting Eurovision in that country allows the voices that are really pushing for change or pushing for recognition or just pushing. It allows those people to have an extra platform to talk about that sort of thing. Yeah. And then thinking about, obviously, because Australia's only been formally involved in sending someone to Eurovision mm-hmm. for a couple of years now, um, we're in a really unique position in terms of the, the representation from just who we've sent. We have a, a queer Asian neurodivergent person representing us in from an Australian standpoint. What does that kind of say about us and our community and our involvement in, in Eurovision? Yeah, I, I have to say that I am pretty stoked. I mean, this is actually a very... It's <laughs> SBS is our broadcaster um, representative for Eurovision. And at this point, we've only sent one white person to Eurovision. Uh, it feels correct. Being Kate Miller-Heidke, who is yeah. wonderful. Um, this year, we've got the incredible Sheldon Riley, um, who has such a glorious, rich baritone voice. So absolutely has the chops to pull it off. Mm. But he's sending a song this year, which is him talking about his dark experiences being different. Um, and it, But it's written in a way that anyone who is, feels different uh, can connect to it. Yeah. yeah. So it's sort of, I guess for him, it's a cathartic experience that he can like to everyone really just sort of vent out that pain. But for, I mean, for me, I, I don't think I've ever connected to an Australian Eurovision song the way I've connected to this one. Yep. Being a weird gay person, um, it feels really like powerful and right. And I think it's a, particularly like, I, I find it very interesting when countries do do stuff like this where they do uh, show off their minority groups and when they really get to use that as like a platform like uh, Norway in 2019 sent a band that consisted of uh, a gay guy, a woman and a Sami perf- uh, performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sami being a... Indigenous a, Nordic. Yeah, from um, the north. Cool. Yep. Um, and this year, uh, interestingly, despite the fact that French songs came second and third last year, we have no songs in French this year as France has opted to send a song in Breton, um, which, for those who don't know, is a Celtic language similar to Welsh um, from the Brittany province. Not Uh, the Brittany Spears province. Not the Brittany Spears province. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So it's interesting that uh, quite often, I mean, there's there's hundreds of examples of this. Um, A lot of them are French. In the 90s, France sent a lot of minorities. Uh, Countries get to show off all the different aspects. Um, and I mean, it, it's not often that they always win the national selections, but there's always a bit of representation in there. And I, I think this year is particularly a good uh, showcase. Yeah. For someone like myself, that's pretty much a, a Eurovision novice. Uh-huh. Um, I, d- I don't know where to start when it comes to accessing Eurovision. If I wanted to get involved with Eurovision if I wanted to finally put my, not my hat in the ring because I'm not going to be performing, but finally I wanted to jump on the bandwagon. Where is a really good access point? Obviously we've got things like Babble Pop and Joe Eurovision to kind of connect from a, you know, a a queer local perspective. What's the best way for me to kind of find out what Eurovision's all about? Well, definitely not Twitter. Uh, (laughs) Everyone seems to hate everything every year. So that's... I think that's just Twitter in general. Yeah, it's, don't go (laughs) there. It's Eurovision specific. Um, I think, honestly, the best place to kind of start is on YouTube. 
Um, if you just want to like have a casual little moment, momentary sit down and like listen to some songs, all the film clips for all the songs for this year are there on a playlist. There's even like a little recap video you can listen to. Um, Joy Eurovision is obviously, I mean, highly biased, but that is a good source too. Uh, this Saturday, we start our previews of the first semifinal, the first half of the first semifinal. So it's the first nine songs in the running this year. Um, so that's a good place to listen to the, like a, a more selective choice. Sure. Um, not feeling too overwhelmed. Not feeling too overwhelmed, but yeah. it's Eurovision really is like a, a quite easy to access thing. It's just pop music. Um, so if there is a country that you've traveled to and you're interested to see what they've sent this year, or there's a place that your family's from and you're like, oh, my grandma was Lithuanian. Maybe I'll see what they're sending this year. Do it. it, it it's a 60s jazz bop called Sentimente. It's the first time Lithuania is sending a song in Lithuanian since, or in a Lithuanian language since 1999. Cool stuff. Very cool stuff. There's, there's lots of really interesting songs this year. Uh, and a few that are really odd, um, which, which is always fun to pepper in. Uh, so I, I think... Just jump on YouTube, type Eurovision 2022 and a country you like, see what happens. Yep. Uh, and what we'll do is we'll post a link to a couple of those playlists that you mentioned in our podcast notes. So just head to joy.org.au forward slash well, well, well. Grab the notes from this week's episode and there'll be some links in there as well as links to um, various other things going on to Joy Eurovision, of course, to Babble Pop, um, ways that you can connect with kind of Great foreign pop music. Yeah. Sounds exciting. And if you want to come to the Eurovision preview party I'm doing at the Laird, uh, just jump on the Laird's Facebook page. The event is on there. Perfect. And to reiterate, um, that is a male-identified space. So for male-identified folk that want to head along, they can do that. Um, And for the wider... uh, community that wants to get involved with Eurovision things, controversies aside, geopolitics aside, identity aside, Thorn Harbour Health, of course, is throwing a Eurovision party, the Countdown to Eurovision Song Contest trivia show night on Friday, May 6. That's at Collingwood Town Hall. It'll be hosted by Frock Hudson, the alter ego of Dina Curie that is also uh, partaking in your own event, Liam. Local homosexual Dina Curie. Local Arcuri. homosexual Dina Curie um, as Frock Hudson and performances by Leatherlungs. Um, that event definitely, definitely, definitely will sell out. So head to Thorn Har- the Thorn Harbour website, thornharbour.org, and head to the calendar of events page uh, to find all about that and where to grab tickets. And don't worry, I won't be there. I will be in your, at Eurovision in Italy, so you will have a chance of winning. You will have a chance of winning because <laughs> Liam won't be there. So, yeah, obviously get your tickets now then. <laughs> Liam Clark, thank you so much for joining us to discuss all things identity and advocacy and activism in the Eurovision space. Good luck at Joy Eurovision. Um, at, sorry, good luck at Eurovision. And uh, have a fantastic event next week. I will see you at the Laird uh, and it will be a fun night. Thank you so much for joining us here on Well, Well, Well. Thank you. And if you are up at 5 a.m. on May 13th, vote for Estonia. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to Joy 94.9. From HIV to COVID-19, STIs and everything in between. You're listening to Well, Well, Well on Joy 94.9. That has been another episode of Well, Well, Well here on Joy 94.9. A big thank you to my co-host Jacinta, to Liam Clark, co-host of Joy's Babble Pop and Joy Eurovision. If you want any more information, please head to our podcast page, joy.org.au forward slash well, well, well. We would love to hear from you. If you've got questions, comments, concerns, you want to get engaged with our show, please send us an email, well, well, well at joy.org.au. See you later. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to Well, 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 your show for LGBTIQ health and well-being, presented by Joy Sponsor, Thorn Harbour Health. For more on these topics and much more, check out Thorn Harbour on social media at Thorn Harbour or via the website, thornharbour.org. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.